Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, I'm joined by Mike Gannon, owner of Full Service Aquatics based in Summit, New Jersey. Mike is the host of the Koi Pond Water Garden podcast. So if you're a listener of Mike's coming over to join the Garden DC podcast and listen to him here, welcome to those new listeners and welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here with you, Kathy. Glad to have you, Mike. So we've known each other for a few years through the International Water Lily and Water Gardening Society, IWGS.org. Yeah. And Mike has written, he has a popular blog on his website, and some of those blog columns have made it into the Water Garden Journal, which is one of my many other hats I wear, is is as editor of that quarterly Water Garden Journal for the IWGS. So after this discussion, listeners, and you get the water gardening bug, which we all hope you do, um, pop on over to IWGS.org and check out maybe joining the Water Garden Society because you'll learn so much more. I mean, we're only going to do the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Right, Mike? Yeah. And it's such a good publication. You know, as a, as a kid, I always loved getting magazines. I had all these magazine subscriptions, you know, tropical fish hobbyists, all this stuff. And that's still, that excitement still hasn't left me, at least when it comes to the IWGS publication. I'm always like, ah, it's here. I love it. It's, <laughs> it, it's really a treat. That's great to hear. And we try to aim for, you know, something for everyone in each journal because it is a society journal. So it can get kind of techie. You know, there could be articles on, really minute breeding techniques for water lilies or lotuses. But then we also have general information and tips for beginners too. So something for all levels of water gardeners. Yeah, definitely a full spectrum uh, publication, no doubt. So Mike, how did you get into gardening and water gardening specifically? And I want you to start off with were you born with chlorophyll or what what term should we use for what should be in your veins as a baby water gardener would that be a a pond tab (laughs) (laughs) well i was born at a very young age and uh from that point i'm just kidding (laughs) from that point you know it didn't take long it was almost like fish brought me into the world of water gardening because even as a little child Uh, My dad had kept fish. My grandfather kept fish. And it was a hobby of mine as a kid as well. And then uh, as I got, actually, when I got out of high school, what I went to study was horticulture. So plants had kind of grabbed my attention by that time. And I did a, you know, little stint in horticulture and then went into a, a whole different field. But I ended up coming back to uh, working with plants and fish and ponds uh, in the early 90s, basically. I When I got out of college, I actually was a park ranger 
and worked outdoors and, and loved all that. It was really a, a great job, especially for, for a young guy. I mean, just being able to be out there and kind of patrol parks and be outdoors and give seminars on plants and host nature walks and stuff like that. I just loved it. And now, um, but it didn't really pay the bills. So I started working on the side doing services, doing like aquarium services and pond cleaning services. And over the years, that just grew to the point where finally in, in 1995, um, actually j- just prior to that, I, I left um, the, the park ranger field and went into working with fish and plants again. And then I sold everything. I sold tropical fish. I sold invertebrates and koi and goldfish. And in 95, finally started my my own business, Full Service Aquatics. So everything kind of comes full circle. And I feel like now this working in this industry for 26 years now, um, it's kind of like the perfect job. I still get to work outdoors. Uh, I'm still working with fish and plants and, and all that great stuff. And, you know, it, it's a very well-suited occupation for for someone like myself. That sounds so awesome. And I love that it was like, fish that brought you to it <laughs> it's that seems like a, a little bit different route than a lot of our past um interviewees on the garden dc podcast some of them have come from uh the art side of things or the flower arranging side of things so that's that's a unique side for us yeah yeah it is but it it all it all kind of interconnects uh, as mm-hmm. you know Definitely. So with full service aquatics, when it's, is it you or do you have employees with you? Or are you doing the majority of the work? No. Um, you know, it's, I started off like most people as a one, one man band. I was working out of the back of a Toyota Corolla uh, <laughs> hatchback, had all my stuff shoved into there. And um, I've slowly been able to build a team thank goodness that has been with me for many, many years. Um, you know, my guys, my longest guy has been with me about 18 years. Um, you know, most of my other guys are 10 years or more. I have a crew of five and, uh, with, with a new guy this year also, but I've been very fortunate that my, my team has stuck around, you know, I mean, we, we all just gelled really well together and I went from the guy doing everything to, now, you know, I've I've had to take the role more, which is kind of ironic. Now I have to be more in the office and do sales and do all those things I never really wanted to do, but you have to do it. I mean, of course, you know, with any business, you got to put yourself out there and I got to make sure that my guys are busy and they can take care of themselves and their families and, you know, live their lives um, through this company. So we're, we're definitely a, a team effort at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, has your job evolved to be more uh, paperwork, billing, uh, marketing to get clients and and sales, or you're still got your toe out in those ponds? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's, it's, it's evolved most certainly that I'm doing a lot more of the paperwork, which again, isn't, isn't really my, my thing, but you got to do what you got to do. So now for example, we do a lot of services. We we manage probably a couple of hundred um, water gardens and koi ponds for clients. And March, April, May, and, and actually into June now, we do opening services and pond cleanings and all those kind of things where that I'm, I'm pretty much hands off. 
Um, I haven't cleaned the pond and apart from last year, which was an anomaly because the world was a little upside down. Um, I haven't had to uh, go and clean a pond myself in, in many years, but when it comes to installing, you know, the design and installation of the pond, I'm pretty, I'm still pretty hands-on with that. You know, I'm, I'm definitely on most installation job sites over the last couple of years, I've kind of let go of that even a little bit and allowed smaller projects to be handled by my guys. But um, I do like to be on site for that because it's a very artistic process, which I greatly enjoy. And um, it's just good to to know that the, you know, the finish project is going to be something that, you know, um, I, I've been a part of. I still enjoy that tremendously. We'll probably circle back to some of those installation tips and the um, methods you use and your style of ponds. So, but first I want to ask about your home garden. So what is your water garden like and, and what plants do you have and what fish do you have at your own home garden? My garden. So I'm into gardening in general. And even last year, you know, there's always, you, you got to find the silver lining and things. So last year during that, all the, the craziness of the world, I started, uh, we started doing raised bed gardens and vegetable gardening and stuff like that. So my, my gardening efforts are a little broader spectrum now, but in relation to what we're talking about, I have a, so my, my pond is a fusion. You know, there's, there's many, many ways to approach pond building. Uh, there's a lot of different methodologies, a lot of, um, just kind of schools of thought on how to build ponds. So my personal pond, and, and oftentimes what I build, is a fusion koi pond water garden. A lot of people think you can't keep koi and, and aquatic plants together, which I I do it every day and I see it every day. So I, I definitely disagree with that sentiment. But uh, right now I have a beautiful koi pond. It's around 4,000 gallons. Um, I have lots of aquatic plants in there. I, I have water lilies, um, different types of water iris. I have bulrush, I have cardinal flower, uh, horsetail reed, which I love. I think that's like one of my favorite plants. Even though it doesn't flower, I just love the look of it and the the architecture of it. Um, what else do we have? I have uh, some dock, some water dock in there, which does really well. Uh, and just other kind of assorted plants tucked in here and there. And even some plants, uh, honestly, Kathy, I don't know what they are because they just showed up on their own. But <laughs> yeah. I used to remove them all. But I'll tell you what, they, they're so pretty that I just kind of let it naturalize. And I would imagine you have a few submersible, like oxygenator type plants. And then do you do any of the annual floating plants like water lettuce or water hyacinth? I do. So I have my koi pond water garden and I also have a patio pond, which is just like a patio bowl. Um, inside of that, I do. I also have water lily um, and a bunch of, I have iris, I have uh, corkscrew rush, I have uh, some floating plants too, being water lettuce and water hyacinth. So though the floating plants like those, I don't like using in applications when the pond has a skimming system. So, so in my, my main pond, I don't use those floaters. Um, they can, they reproduce very readily. I'm sure you're familiar with them. And so I don't, 
want that aspect of it personally for my pond. And usually what I recommend to clients as well, if you're doing those floaters and you have a skimming system, you need to keep them contained in some sort of a ring or, or just some sort of containment. Otherwise, they do tend to float into the skimmer and that can cause some problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had one year where my water hyacinth were such prolific, uh, you know, setting offsets. It was just, I actually filled a whole kiddie pool with hundreds of water hyacinths by mid-July. I don't know what was what was so different about that year. Usually, you know, they'll double in size after a month or so and then maybe triple in size by the end of summer. But I was giving away left and right <laughs> water hyacinths and then making little just water ponds everywhere. Just, yeah. you know, bowls full of water, just water hyacinths, bouquets of water hyacinths. And I'm and sure they, they did great. Yeah, and they bloomed up a storm too when they were it was beautiful. But yeah, that was like the boom year of water hyacinths for some reason. But that hasn't happened again, thank goodness. And yeah, that would clog up the the pond filters and and also, you know, it also holds back your water lilies and other plants from filling out. Yeah. And uh, you know, because we do a lot of services and maintenance, um, you know, I have found just seeing it used in so many different ponds in so many different ways, it, it's actually, and I, I don't want to disparage the water hyacinth, but it's kind of, or, or lettuce, but they're kind of dirty plants too, in the sense that they grow these massive root systems and they're constantly dropping old roots and growing new new roots. They're, they're incredibly fast growing plants. The hyacinth is one of the fastest growing plants on the planet. Um, and those roots, get, you know, they go to the bottom of the pond, they start to break down, they create muck, create, create debris, they clog up filters, etc. So that that's another reason I'm not too crazy about using them. But uh, the they're so prolific, Kathy, it's funny, because your story is, is a is a common one. People start off the season with, you know, three to five cute little hyacinth or lettuce. And by the time August rolls around, they're, they are removing as fast as they can, um, mm-hmm. the amount of plants that grow. I always get calls during August from people, hey, you want to buy some hyacinth? <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> would, like, you, would you like to buy a garbage bag full yourself? <laughs> <laughs> the, and the good thing, though, about them is they're easily compostable. And I find them to be a really great addition to the compost pile because they're so full of, like, if you're keeping fish in your pond, you know, they have the, obviously the fish uh, excrement in there too. Right. And they are, and that's a great thing to do with them is to compost them for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Easily. And they break down so quickly, almost as quickly as they grew up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so for your installations and your philosophy of pond, do you use preform pond? Are you totally free form? Um, how do you do an installation? So I, I would say I've probably done everything um, at some point or another over the years. And then I, you kind of learn what works, what doesn't work, what makes clients happy, what doesn't. So not that they don't make them happy, but I, I don't do preformed ponds anymore because crazy enough, I mean, I've been building for, like I said, 26 years. So I got lots of experience. Those are actually difficult ponds to install getting them completely level, 
where they don't warp or, or have leaks and stuff like that can, can be a, a little tricky. So we don't really do those. Our installations and designs are, um, they're all unique. So they're all hand excavated or machine excavated. And we, we create the shape by way of the excavation and we use flexible liner to actually act as the mechanism to keep water in there as opposed to one of those preformed shells. So that that is our approach as far as how we, we line the pond. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there's many different ways to build ponds. There's many different approaches. There's, and, and several of them can be successful. There's a lot more ways to fail as well. But our designs, um, we do use rock and gravel. That's part of our, we have a, a naturalistic approach. So our ponds are usually free form. We don't do a lot of the formal like rectangles, squares, circles. Um, everything, most of them, I should say are free form. Um, we have rock and gravel that cover the, the entirety of the liner. Uh, our filter systems basically are comprised of a skimming system, a biofilter system, um, aeration and circulation. So a good pumping system. And when all those different filter components come together and work in conjunction with each other, uh, we get excellent results, which is why I choose to build the way I do. It's about knowing my clients are going to have a, a nice experience. They're not going to be struggling with their ponds, working on their ponds. They're, they're going to get something that they know is going to have clean, clear water uh, on a consistent basis, and it's going to be easy to maintain when they have to do maintenance. So that's kind of our, our approach to how we build ponds. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about low maintenance, I always tell other gardeners who don't have water gardens that it is the least amount of maintenance of everything in my garden. And for number one, there's no weeding. Right. right. <laughs> so there's like, that's a 10 foot by eight foot at least area that I'm not having to weed right there ever. And I don't have to water. <laughs> I was like, you do not two. have to water. <laughs> <laughs> so you might have to top off your pond if we have like six weeks of drought or something, or, you know, you know, God forbid, if your leaner uh, liner does have a leak or something, uh, you have to locate that and patch that and then refill. But other than that, I find, you know, we, we get enough rain to keep it pretty level and full yeah. in the mid-Atlantic. Yeah. And when we build, we always build with um, keeping plants in mind. Even if a client says, you know, uh, I don't know that I'm going to keep aquatic plants, we still build the pond in such a way that should they change their mind, because very often they do, you know, ponds are long-term installations, maybe five years down the road, they're like, you know what, I would like to keep some water lilies. So we build it in a way that clients can enjoy the world of water gardening. Uh, we put shelves in there at very specific heights, usually about 10 inches below water level. And then we also do, lately, over the last few years, we've been doing what are called integrated planting areas, which are, it's kind of like when you're doing the plantings, you're taking everything out of the pots. So no longer do our clients put, put the pots into the water. You don't have to see those containers anymore. Everything gets integrated into the pond by way of uh, being uh, planted into a bed of gravel. And the plants do absolutely fantastic. So they grow in that bed of gravel. 
it's complete. I mean, it just is a seamless part of the pond. But another nice thing too is that you know plants don't fall over during windy days, um, and fish, koi fish, goldfish, they can't access the plants. So I think that's a big part of when people say fish and plants can't go together. It's either that their pond wasn't designed with the intention of keeping aquatic plants, um, or they're having difficulties, you know, maybe the shelves aren't big enough, or the interior was not built in a way that can really support plants. So I always say if, if you plan for it, you can absolutely keep plants and fish. I mean, there's just no question about it. Um, but if you do it as an afterthought, if you build your pond and then you're like, now I'm going to get some plants, that's when I think some people may find a little bit of a struggle. Hmm. And to dial it back a little for really, really beginner or DIY water gardeners. So you normally start with digging a hole and then the center kind of portion is usually about, what do you make it, Mike? I, I Mine is about two and a half to three feet in the middle portion. And then the shelf area, I think, is about 18 inches deep. And that's the surrounding shelf, if you picture a giant oval, about a foot and a half in Okay, yep. from the edges. It's a good way to do it. So mm-hmm. if, if you're keeping fish, uh, I'm on the same page as you. Uh, our standard installation, and of course we could do you know any variation of it, but our standard installation is 30 inches deep. We do three shelves. We have a, a, a 10-inch deep shelf, a 20-inch deep shelf, and then the bottom of the pond is 30 inches deep. So the 10-inch deep, most, most aquatic plants come in those 8-inch high containers, generally speaking. So that eight, that ten inch shelf is to accommodate those, which are mostly marginals, and you can place the container right into there and have it submerged just the right amount, you know, just a little bit of water over the crown of the plant. And if the plant wants to be a little higher, you can adjust it pretty easily with, you know, getting something underneath it to give it a little more height. The twenty inch depth generally is we're using for water lilies and and plants that like it a little bit deeper even down to the 30 inch depth, but I, I've definitely found between 20 and 24 inches for water lilies. Um, they seem pretty happy at that depth. So that's why we kind of choose the the depth parameters that we do. You know, for beginners, the the great thing about water gardening is that it really is. I mean, it it's pretty easy. The plants, most of them are are very easy to take care of. They're very, very hardy. You know, they come from, in nature, these areas where it's usually where where land and water meet, whether it's along a, a pond, a lake, a stream, or other bodies of water, where the land and water meet, that's where most of our marginal and aquatic plants come from, you know, with the exception of lilies and stuff like that. So those are very tough environment. In nature, that's a very tough environment. You know, that that's not an easy place to live. So these plants have to be prepared to handle drought if water goes water levels go down and things dry up. They have to be prepared to handle flooding. And flooding can last quite some time sometimes as water levels come up due to storm activity. They have to be able to handle freezing conditions. So I mean they're super tough plants. And I think that's what's really nice about water gardening for beginners. You can, you can 
get up to speed and become pretty successful um, pretty quickly. And if, if you have people that you can turn to or, or podcasts like this and some other people who you can, you know, trust their experience and their um, opinions, I think you can be very successful rather quickly in water gardening, which to me is just awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the learning curve is is pretty small and, and you can get launched pretty quickly. And that can be just visiting a few water gardens and looking at them and, and then at some demonstration, you know, area, or if you have a public garden near you that has a couple water gardens you can look at or, or koi ponds, that gives you a few quick ideas. And then, of course, looking at some of the online sources like your website and looking at the list of marginal plants that are available. So anything from a miniature cattail or a chorus or sweet flag can I love pickerel rush that's one of my favorite for the Beautiful. for the the I guess you would call it the 10 inch shelf level yeah. <laughs> and then our yeah. hardy water lilies or tropical water lilies for the next level and speaking of hardiness and that these are all perennial plants that basically the foliage dies back and then for winterizing I cut mine back and then shove them all to that deepest level. Um, how do you do it for your clients, Mike? So I used to do that. I, I used to, um, I used to take the plants, I would cut them back and I would put them down to the bottom of the pond for the winter months because um, I was advised to do that. So, and it was by people that I, that I trusted their, their advice and their opinions. And over the years, I kind of came to realize, I'm like, gosh, that's, I don't understand why we're doing that. Because, for example, my pickerel is so happy where it is. It's thriving. And in nature, it would, you know, along the edge of a waterway, it's going to stay there no matter what. It doesn't, it doesn't migrate during the winter months. It stays right where it is. And it comes back year after year. So I kind of look at that practice of putting plants down to the bottom of the pond as a very stressful thing for your plants. And I've, I have noticed, because I still have clients that do that, um, I have noticed that those plants don't bounce back quite as quickly. So it's almost like you're taking a plant that's been thriving all year, doing great. Then we cut them down, and then we put them in a state of being in a flood, like they're completely submerged in flood conditions for months on end, uh, oftentimes in the dark because of snow cover, et cetera, and with very low temperatures. And then we, you know, spring rolls around and we, you know, bring them back up to the top and expect them to just bing, kind of bounce back and do great. What I've definitely seen is that the plants that we leave in place, if they're happy and we leave them in place, we still cut them back, like I said, but they come back every year. And they come back a little bit earlier and much stronger and faster than plants that we're pulling out of the bottom of a client's ponds. So when I have the option, I, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that with my plants. My plants stay in place all year. I, don't, I do cut them back. I usually leave about three to four inches, depending on the plant, um, above water level. And then just let them ride for the winter. And they do absolutely great. And, and I don't have to get into the bottom of the pond in the spring and, and hope that they're going to come back from that really a deep state of stress. Well, Mike, I am so glad you said that 
<laughs> because <laughs> my dirty little secret is last winter and the winter before, I never got a chance to put them to the, the center and right. they've been fine. And I thought it was because we've had a couple pretty mild winters that I lucked out on that. Uh, so it's good to hear, you know, I'm in the DC area, Europe and New Jersey. It sounds like for the mid Atlantic, that is one chore at the end of the season. That's not going to be necessary for us here in the mid Atlantic. And maybe for more Northern gardeners, the marginal plants in their water gardens might need that extra protection for getting below the freeze line maybe, but that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. I mean, uh, in my, my experience, I've, you know, probably been treating plants like that for, I guess about the, at least, well, definitely more than 10 years, probably 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. And um, they do great. They do great. I don't drop anything to the bottom. Yeah. And it makes total sense, your explanation, because, you know, here naturally, and a lot of them are native plants to our area, you know, for instance, the cattails, uh, and nobody is going out in nature and shoving them to the middle of the pond, obviously. Yeah. And (laughs) winter doesn't come and, and put two feet of water above their crown. You know, mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. So the plants are genetically programmed to to do just fine under pretty brutal circumstances. Mm-hmm. And that's another great point about water gardening is that the plants are really resilient and super tough. Like you can basically put them in a bucket of mud, a lot of them, you know, for weeks or months on end. And then pot them up, added to your pond, as long as they never get totally dried out. Is that your experience as well, Mike? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it seems like, you know, you can be, I don't want to call it negligent, <laughs> but <laughs> you can be a little bit of a busy gardener who, ha- you know, life takes you away for a little bit, but your plants won't die as long as you, you know, have water on top of them. Yeah. Um, and, and they don't need any extra fertilizer or anything else at that point. But if you want them to be more floriferous, more flowering, especially your water lilies, um, you might add some fertilizer to that. Can you describe how you might fertilize your water lilies? Yeah, um, water lilies do like to eat. And I, I kind of put it that way when I'm talking to people about water lilies. Um, so we fertilize in the springtime. Um, we're generally using fertilizer tabs that we're pushing down into the soil to feed them. Um, two or three, you know, uh, kind of depends. And then I, I would recommend feeding several times during the season. Now, I don't get to put that into practice on all of our clients' ponds. Um, I do that with mine. And if you feed them, you're going to get much better performance. You'll get more flowering, more vegetative growth. Uh, if you, I have some clients who, you know, they don't really do anything to their plants and they still do pretty good, but you may not get, you, you're going to, I feel like those plants get more vegetative growth and just not so much flower production. But if you feed them and you have the right conditions, then they should, they should really be quite a showpiece, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and with marginals, you don't have to feed them or fertilize them as much. Definitely in the springtime, we, we kind of feed everybody. And then uh, I would say maybe hit it once, perhaps twice more during the season and leave it at that. Now, at the end of the season, specifically in relation to water lilies, we usually don't fertilize. We, we kind of winterize ponds in October and early November. That's when we cut back the plants, like we had talked about earlier. Um, 
but I'm not fertilizing at that time. Um, now I'll be honest with you. I don't know if that's to their benefit or not, but it just seems to me that when the plant is kind of going into its dormancy to, you know, kind of all of a sudden throw a bunch of nutrients into there, maybe confuses the plant. That's my thinking. I don't know if Mm -hmm. that's the case. That's just how my mind is working. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's general practice, you know, not just in water gardening, but across all types of gardening that you would cut back and stop fertilizing by uh, at least mid fall, if you hadn't already done it in early fall, because you don't want to push out growth just when a a hard frost or a freeze is going to touch that plant. Right. Yeah. So last year on the Garden DC podcast, we had Kelly Billing of Water Becomes a Garden talking all about lotuses and her lotus breeding work and everything. So if you didn't catch that episode, go back and check that out. That was podcast episode number 11 on the Garden DC podcast. Yeah. And Mike, you you know Kelly well. And I was just going to say for a few words on lotuses that I keep my miniature lotus totally separate from the rest of my water garden. It has its own special container um, because I have found that lotus don't behave well with other plants. What do you find? Uh, they can, I would agree. For, first of all, Kelly is amazing. She is a, just a wealth of information um, when it comes to lotus and water gardening, generally speaking, um, even just ponds, generally speaking. But yeah, I treat lotus the same way. I kind of treat it as, as its own. It's that special little child, you know, and you kind of give it its own space and area to play. <laughs> and uh, because in the, in the pond, it can get a little um, aggressive. I mean, if, if it's, if it's happy and successful, it can almost be too successful. So we usually try to keep them like you do in their own contained area. And, Mm -hmm. and even then, I mean, they're, they just, generally speaking, they, they perform tremendously. Yeah. It's almost, if you're not familiar in water gardening, I would treat lotus like i would treat running bamboo in your garden <laughs> it's gonna right. it eventually would be all running bamboo if you let it and i think the same thing in a water garden it will eventually be all lotus if you let that lotus take over yeah i've seen uh, i was on vacation down in virginia and uh we were near virginia beach and just just driving along the highway and uh we went by a natural a big natural pond and I just saw this huge patch of lotus. And I said, oh, let me check this out. So we pulled over and I'm looking at the, the patch. But then as I kind of start scanning the whole area, it was all lotus. It was incredible. I mean, it had literally just taken over everything. I'm, I'm, used, I'm used to seeing cattail or, you know, yellow flag iris doing behaving like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, lotus, if left unchecked, absolutely. It'll, it'll take over everything. And here in Maryland, there is a, a place on the eastern shore, kind of up, up past Chesapeake, where there is a big patch of Native American lotus. And, and it's, it's a huge area, but yeah. it's, it's solid American lotus. <laughs> There's right. not going to be one other plant in that area, but it's, it's a beautiful sight to see when you do go see it. Yeah, it is pretty impressive, those kind of scenarios. Yep. So let's talk about the other creatures that live in our ponds now. So, you know, of course, when you have a water garden, it attracts every living creature I found. So everything from birds, if you're a birder, to amphibians and frogs. And then, of course, 
you can add fish and snails and other aquatic life. Um, so I know that you're a big fan of koi, Mike. So let's talk about the difference between koi and goldfish first. Sure. Um, they are in the same family of, of with each other, same family of fish. Um, the, di- the differences between them would be basically uh, that koi is a carp. It's a, it's a much bigger fish than the goldfish. And goldfish I use as kind of an umbrella term because there's many different types of goldfish. So I think generally when you say goldfish, people think of that classic image of the goldfish in a bowl, you know, an mm-hmm. orange, orange little fish. But you can have um, shabunkins and sarasa comets and all these different, you know, fancy tail uh, comets, all these different types of goldfish, as well as all these different types of koi. So goldfish and koi both are very similar in how you take care of them and what their requirements are as far as um, water parameters and water quality and water conditions. They're both very, uh, they're, even their, their foods are very, very similar. Now, again, the, I think the main difference would be that koi get considerably larger uh, they're very social, as are goldfish. They're very social fish, which I think is what makes them so interesting to humans to to keep them as pets, which is a very unusual relationship. Um, generally speaking, fish don't want to be around humans, and they scatter when humans are present. Koi and goldfish will come right up to you and be like, hey, you know, like they're very social. Um Koi can get very big, up to three feet, you know. Um, they live an awful long time. They, you know, to say a koi would live 60 years is not an understatement. There's even, you know, I would say a little mythology around koi saying that they, they can live a couple hundred years. Um, I think that's a nice story. I'm not sure how much mm-hmm. I buy into that, but it, but it's a really nice story. And I, I still tell it. <laughs> even though I don't know if I fully believe it. Um, but when it comes to, you know, the type of fish they are, they're similar in all those different ways, but they're, they're also very, very different fish. Um, you know, the goldfish are going to be not get as big. They don't live quite as long, but they can live 20 years, no doubt. Um, even probably longer than that. So there's a lot of, I would say there's more similarities to them than, than differences between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say the initial cost, you know, obviously goldfish are, are usually fairly inexpensive. And if you start off with a small koi, um, that's not maybe one of a specialty koi collection that it wouldn't be, you know, out of, out of your budget probably. Yeah. The um, koi can get the most expensive fish in the world are koi. Um, I think there was a, a koi that sold for a little over $2 million. That, that's how expensive they can get. And uh, I'll tell you, I had to finance my house to purchase that koi. You know, I mean, it wasn't easy. <laughs> um, no, it wasn't my koi. But anyway, so, but that's true. You know, I mean, koi can be very, very expensive. Uh, the price point on goldfish is much more reasonable. Um, we just opened a place. So I, I just this year, actually just about a month ago, I opened a new place called that pond place and it's the retail extension of full service aquatics, which is more 
dedicated to construction, maintenance, and services. But we now have this really cool little retail place where we sell aquatic plants, we sell the fish, we sell all the supplies. Um, It's in Stewartsville, New Jersey, in the highlands of New Jersey. It's a really beautiful area. Like I want people to come and visit and just hang out. It's like just such a beautiful spot to be in. But what we're trying to do with that is to really work mostly with domestic koi for so many reasons, but among them would be the price point. Uh, a lot of the imported koi from coming in from Japan or, or other parts of the world are very expensive, of course, because of the quality of them, but you're actually paying quite a bit just for the shipping of those fish and the, the weight that it takes to move a fish around the world. Um, you know, water is eight pounds per gallon. So you're, you're paying a lot of what you're paying in your koi is paying for those shipping costs of getting that koi to you. So we've kind of had a little bit of a philosophy at our, our retail place that we're going to try to work mostly with domestic koi and quite honestly with koi that, you know, the closer I can find breeders to our location, um, those are the guys that I want to work with because I want to make sure that when we're getting koi coming in, they're fully, fully acclimated and adjusted to the living conditions in New Jersey because that's where my clients are going to be. So bringing a fish in from, for example, somewhere tropical all the way to New Jersey, it might be a fun experience and a beautiful fish and and all that, but is it going to thrive in New Jersey weather? Whereas if I can get something that that is bred, uh, you know, within a four-hour radius of me, I'm I'm a lot more comfortable knowing that those fish are going to do very well, and I don't have to. And the price point comes down just so much, you know, because I don't have to pay for all that shipping, which is which is a killer. That's that's a lot of it's a lot of money to ship mm-hmm. koi. Yeah. So if you stick with domestic, and listen, everything is Japanese stock. So it's when I say domestic, it's not like it's not a Japanese koi. It's just bred. It's born and bred here domestically. True. So there's no native koi. We don't want to mislead anybody there. <laughs> right. That's a better way to put it. There is no yeah, native correct. koi. Correct. And I've been to a few uh, koi shows and exhibits, and that those are so fun. If you've never been to one, um, the one that's local in the DC area is the ZNA Potomac Koi event or exhibit that's usually held at Meadowlark in the summertime, Meadowlark Botanic Gardens in Vienna, Virginia. And basically they had small, you know, pop-up ponds set up like a little backyard swimming pool. And then you look over the edge and, and you basically see what's the size of a small dolphin to me, (laughs) (laughs) huge, large Koi. And I always think about the car ride uh, or a truck or whatever they were vehicle they were transported in that these poor fish have had to go through and that the poor drivers the stress oh, of transporting yeah. these just to bring them out for a show for a weekend yeah. and then to put them back in and bring them back to their you know their little water garden or, or where they were living in a koi pond yeah the koi shows are great they're absolutely great i mean even if you don't know what a koi is if you accidentally went to a koi show, you're going to have a great time. It's so interesting to see the koi enthusiasts, the koi hobbyists, the koi kichi. Um, they're just, they're such great people. They're so enthusiastic about keeping koi and keeping fish, sharing information. Um, 
you can just tell how much they love the fish. Just the fact of what you just said, Kathy, that they're willing to drive their fish to go show them off for a weekend, um, just as a testament to how into um, these fish everybody are. It, it's a great experience. Mm-hmm. And I once stumbled across one in the the Southwest. I was working at a different convention. I crossed into a park and there was a Japanese festival going on. And in the middle of the Japanese festival was a koi festival. All <laughs> I right. was like, cool. this is the best thing I've ever seen. I was I just fell in love with that. It was so wonderful. But I did want to talk about when you said that koi are social fish, because I think that's what really captures people's hearts. You know, once they go to a festival or, or experience somebody else's koi pond and they hand feed the koi that's when I think the little switch goes on in their head and they say, I want a koi pond. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple of fun things and maybe we can share some trivia about koi. Um, they don't just need to be fed fish pellet food, right? They like some of the same things that people like, like you can feed them watermelon mm-hmm. and they also like, I think kale and I'm trying to remember the other green that they really like to eat. They'll do romaine. Mm-hmm. romaine it's, it's, that's what i had in mind yep yeah it's the dark greens mm-hmm. you know iceberg won't do much for them now it's like the almost stiff leaf long yes. that you can kind of tear into strips and they'll just gobble it right up yeah they love it and watermelon i i just think that's hilarious <laughs> Me too. and it's like in nature when would a koi have encountered a watermelon <laughs> to be able to eat the flesh to be able to eat the flesh but somebody offered it to a koi at one point and they just slurped it right up and people have been doing it for fun ever since yeah absolutely it's 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 great and they'll do other you know you can give them um orange slices and stuff like that you can give them i mean you could give them zucchini uh it does have to be weighted so it goes down to the bottom otherwise it you know floating it'll just go into your skimmer or, or whatever but they like zucchini raw zucchini stuff like that yeah they'll, mm. they'll take several treats any and protein treats too they they like krill they like shrimp you know things mm-hmm. along things along those lines yeah because they will eat obviously insects and worms or anything that comes in contact with the water surface and my little goldfish which are you know I think mine are mostly in the eight inch, 10 inch range mm-hmm. have been going crazy with our cicadas right now. Sure. And the cicadas are about three to four inches themselves, but it's amazing what a fish can fit in their, in their stomach. Yeah, it really is. I was watching my, my fish take down. We have cicadas in my area as well right now. And uh, just watching them take them down. It's, it's interesting. In mm-hmm. some ways, I'm like, ew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, but I know it's natural. Every, every, everybody's eating the cicadas right now. It's pretty pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. And that does bring up the point, I get this question a lot when I mention water gardening, which is mosquitoes. So I don't have any issue with mosquitoes in my entire garden. And I attribute that to a recirculating pond with a pond pump and the fact that I keep fish in it. Yep. Do you, do you have any other mosquito tips for people? So my mosquito uh, experience goes way back. I'll talk about when I was a park ranger again, because part of our duties in um, patrolling parks was was looking for potential issues with mosquito populations. So I was very uh, I'm very well versed in mosquito uh, 
information. So mosquitoes, generally speaking, in water gardens and koi ponds should not be an issue. Um, mosquitoes, they want uh, slow or non-moving water. They want it to be low oxygen and very high in nutrients. Now, the term we usually use for that type of water is called stagnant water. That's their preferred habitat. For a mosquito to go into a water garden, for example, water gardens, the plants eat up all the nutrients. So water gardens generally are kind of a low nutrient environment. And then add to that, if you're keeping fish, koi fish, uh, mosquito fish, or goldfish in a pond, they are you know, primary predators of mosquitoes or any insect that is unfortunate enough to land on the surface of the pond. So mosquitoes and water gardens and koi ponds really are just not an issue because, you know, especially going back to the fact that we, we generally speaking, we're circulating our ponds, we're oxygenating our ponds, we're filtering our ponds, we're creating the exact opposite conditions that they want. Our water is moving, sometimes moving pretty fast. Uh, our water is highly oxygenated and our water is full of predators for mosquitoes. So if you have a mosquito issue, it is much more likely that it is coming from, uh, you know, an overturned Frisbee that's collecting water, you know, in your neighbor's yard, or maybe a, a wetland that's a mile away, or maybe somebody hasn't cleaned their gutters in your neighborhood, you know, those type of things. For mosquitoes to be actively reproducing in a koi pond or a water garden, I would say is, is exceedingly rare even though the perception is, oh my gosh, I'm going to get mosquitoes. It's exceedingly rare. You will mm -hmm. rarely see mosquitoes in koi ponds or water gardens. Mm -hmm. And I think if you just go to a public garden or a place with water gardens and experience it, you will see there there's no mosquito issue. I think what people are associating is when they go, say, fishing at a natural lake or a pond, mm -hmm and are beset by mosquitoes, but that's a totally different environment than a manufactured koi pond or water garden. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, in other words, the, there's habitat around those natural bodies of water that mosquitoes can, because, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a pond or a lake, the area surrounding it is pretty permeated with water, even though it appears to be dry. And that mosquitoes, that's, that's what they love. Mm -hmm. But but what we're talking about, I would say, really is not an issue at all. Mm -hmm. And just to wrap up on the mosquitoes, I also have a great love for dragonflies. And I find them, you know, to be really interactive with the pond and always having them. And just having them around is, is kind of my extra layer of insurance against mosquitoes. Because <laughs> should some come over from the neighbors or, you know, ponding on the road or something or down by the train tracks, I know those dragonflies will be on top of it too. They can literally eat um, their more, you know, like five times their body weight in mosquitoes. And jumping way back to the beginning of our conversation, you had mentioned, you know, how many different insects and critters mm -hmm. and animals utilize ponds and water gardens. As a tool of conservation, ponds, water gardens are absolutely tremendous, and they will attract so many different um, critters to the, the body of water that you have, and many, many of them prey upon mosquitoes. So your dragonflies, your frogs, your toads, 
um, bats, uh, birds. I mean, everything that comes around, if a mosquito comes into the area, it's like, it's just gone. It has no chance. So, Mike, how can our listeners get in touch with you? And also, what is your area of service? So you mentioned your retail shop, which, of course, anybody could come to when they're in the area and visit. But are you taking on new clients and and how far out do you go? We're always taking on new clients. Um, As far as services, we cover most of the state of New Jersey for services such as cleanings and maintenance and stuff like that. For projects, I mean, we've traveled pretty far. You know, we've we've built in Martha's Vineyard, Tennessee, um, West Virginia, Illinois. I mean, we've we've built all over the place. So if the project is the right project, we'll work with clients wherever they are. As far as getting in touch, um, my website is fullserviceaquatics.com, and I have a, a redirect that's easy to easy to remember. It's called loveyourpond.com. That will take you to my website. And then um, I hope people will come and visit us at our new pond place. It's called That Pond Place. That Pond Place, it's on Route 57 in Stewartsville, New Jersey. And it's really centrally located. We're about an hour from New York City. We are uh, 30 minutes from the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, not too far from Philadelphia. So it's, we kind of have a, within an hour radius of us, we're, we're, we have a lot of uh, possibilities for people to come and visit us. We've already had people come out from Long Island to come and see our store, which was really very, you know, it was just such a nice treat, <laughs> you know, for somebody to come out that far. So that Palm Place is in Stewartsville, New Jersey, and we do um, co- fit goldfish, koi fish, pond plants, uh, tropical palm plants, hardy, and all the pond supplies. So anything you need. Um, you know, I, I could, I would love to see people there as well. Any final thoughts, Mike, for somebody who might have a little bit of, say, hesitation or trepidation about getting that first pond? Because um, I'm going to throw in my one piece of advice and see if you agree with that and maybe can add some more on. And mine is go bigger than you think, because everybody starts off with a small pond or water garden, say it could be a six foot diameter or circle. And then a couple years later, they decide they want to go bigger. So I would say start bigger than you think in the first place is my biggest advice. And that's a great piece of advice. Uh, I'm going to second that because in 26 years, I've never had anybody ask me to make their ponds smaller, but I've had many, many people ask me to make their ponds bigger. So definitely go bigger than you think. And when it comes to filtering your pond, do that too. Go bigger. If you have a pond that's 500 gallons, don't buy a filter that's rated for 500 gallons. Buy a filter that's rated for 1,000 gallons. Um, so go bigger on, on all those different things. And more importantly, just do it. Don't be nervous about it. it. It's easier than you think. I mean, there's a learning curve, but there's people out there like yourself and like myself who would be just so happy to help people to enjoy this. It, it's such an incredible element um to have in your life it's it's everybody loves it even if you don't realize you love it when i like to entertain so my wife and i will have parties and eventually i and i'm not saying hey let's go to the pond everybody eventually ends up at the pond it's just like that magnetic point where everybody ends up at and everybody loves it so 
if you're on the fence about it, just jump in, get your feet wet, start doing it, go bigger than you think you want to go and filter a little more than you think you should. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. And I love that. Get your feet wet. Get your feet (laughs) wet. Do it. Come on. All right. Thank you so much, Mike, for sharing your love of water gardening and your wisdom about koi ponds. Thank you, Kathy. It was my pleasure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plant Profile, Crocosmia Crocosmia is a slender, tall perennial that takes up little room in your garden, though it makes a big impact. It is a cousin of the gladiola and has a very similar growing habit and appearance. Like most bulbs, Crocosmia is a set-it-and-forget-it plant, my favorite kind. You just plant the bulb in the spring or fall and wait for it to come up in summer. It prefers full to part sun and a medium amount of moisture. Try to plant it where it will get decent drainage as it can rot in heavy wet clay soils. Cocosmia forms clumps and every three years or so you can divide it in early spring to share it with a gardening friend or to spread it around your own garden. Cocosmia lucifer makes a great cut flower but I like to leave it out in the garden as hummingbirds are attracted to it and there's not much else that blooms in that brilliant, show-stopping firecracker red. Crocosmia is available in a number of other hot-colored varieties, but Lucifer is the most commonly sold and easiest to find in garden centers and bulb catalogs. Crocosmia, you can grow that. What's new in the garden? Well, I just returned from the PHS Philadelphia Flower Show, the nation's largest and longest running horticultural event, which, because of COVID, moved outdoors for the first time in its history. The 2021 show was also pushed back from its normal timing of early March to early June. So that made it really interesting this year. Uh, It took place in the FDR Park just south of downtown Philadelphia and I thought it was amazing. Uh, The heat was a bit intense the day I attended it and there was a threat of thunderstorms so that's always a little bit harrowing for having a, a large group outside but overall I think it went really well and I have to congratulate the Pennsylvania Hort Society for pulling it off at all in this very difficult year and with all these pressures and the stress and the fact that it even happened, I think, was a miracle. But I have 
no regrets having attended it. I encourage anybody who's listening to this and who is hearing it in time to go on up to Philadelphia, get your tickets online first at phsonline.org. It runs through June 13th. So uh, if you're listening to this in time and want to jump up there or down there (laughs) or across the pond and make it in time, do feel free to enjoy this wonderful event. I've been hearing a lot of weird social media rumors about it, which a lot of it is untrue. Um, So you have to go and experience it yourself. I think seeing the exhibits in situ in an actual garden setting has made it a very different experience, of course, than being inside the Philadelphia Convention Center. And that makes a whole different feel to it as well. Uh, It did reduce the amount of floral competitions, the flower arranging side of the show. But on the other hand, it increased the amount of actual gardening and horticulture that happened. So that was a-okay with me because I'm going for garden inspiration, garden ideas, beautiful garden settings. So I think it was a mix and the best of both worlds, really, because there were still tons of beautiful floral installations, um, lots and lots of eye candy, lots of food, lots of vendors, some wonderful interactive experiences. But most of all, it was about gardening and that made it a wonderful event for me. The show theme this year is Habitat, Nature's Masterpiece. So a lot of the exhibits focused on various habitats. And when I heard the theme in advance, I thought insect habitat, you know, bees, butterflies, maybe a bit on birds or some other wildlife. But what was interesting is a lot of the habitat focuses were human habitats. So I thought that really brought that home. It it had a lot of focus on urban gardening and the past year of dealing with COVID and how we experienced our gardens in different ways in that past year and made gardening our habitat and where we lived a lot of us in the last year being isolated from our offices and loved ones and from the rest of the world. So that really added another interesting layer to the show's theme. So I have uploaded about 400 photos that I took in my one day at the flower show to the Washington Gardener Magazine Facebook page and I invite you to go Look through that album to get a taste of what you will see at the flower show. Or if you went to the flower show, I invite you to comment on some of those photos. Let me know what your favorite exhibit was, what you thought overall of the show, and maybe how you experienced it. Was it something that you thought about afterwards? Did it bring anything new to you? Did you have any takeaways from the show? I'd love to hear from you all. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm 
slash GardenDC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to WashingtonGardener.com. Thank you. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.